Well, I want you to keep your finger in Proverbs this morning. We will be turning to a number of those passages that Tim read for us. But before I do that, can everybody hear me all right? Are we good? Am I on? All right, good. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 briefly. And I want to read a passage that sort of puts in context why I'm preaching on sort of a sad subject. This is not a particular theme that we preach on often, especially when we come to themes in Proverbs. The theme of heartache is a theme in Proverbs that often doesn't get hit on. But it's, I hope, just from Tim's reading, you see that it's worthy of a sermon. It's prevalent enough in the book of Proverbs And it's certainly a reality enough in our lives that I think we need to address it. First Thessalonians chapter five puts in context why I'm preaching to you on this subject this morning. We read in verse 12, first Thessalonians 512, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So there's a word to the church about its pastors and how how they're to treat their pastors. Be at peace among yourselves. And then in verse 14. Paul transfers now from speaking to the church about how it should treat its pastors to speaking to the church about how it should treat one another and the kinds of things it should say to one another. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So in the church, there's to be admonishment for the idle, there's to be encouragement for the faint-hearted, there's to be help for the weak, there's to be patience for all of us, toward all of us. And just as I was thinking this week about different themes that we've already heard in the book of Proverbs, I think we've gotten a good dose of admonishment, specifically related to our words, related to our work, and we've received a lot of help. But also in this passage, we have another word, which is to encourage the faint-hearted. Obviously, the implication is the church is going to have within its population, within its congregation, faint-hearted people. People who are weary of heart, who are weak of heart, who are struggling, who are, in the language of Proverbs, crushed in spirit, dejected, downcast. And as a result, Paul speaks to the church and says that we are to encourage those people. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to, through my sermon and as a hope, as a way to provoke you, in your ongoing ministry in each other's lives, to this dimension of your ministry, which is to encourage the faint-hearted, to expect that there will be seasons of faint-heartedness in all of our lives. There will be seasons in which we are dejected and crushed and grieving, and it's in those times that we need encouragement. So I hope that this sermon will be a means to that end this morning. The title is Wise Up About Heartache, Compassionate Counsel for the Crushed in Spirit. Now, I am not in any way going to exhaust the topic of Christian suffering and the, the trials and difficulties of our lives. I can't do that in one sermon, so I want to recommend two books to you, none of which we have on our bookshelf, so I'm sorry about that. I know that's what I like to do. If I get a book recommendation, I want to go get the bookshelf and see if it's there. These are not there, but I hear Amazon has them. Amazon does have them, and lots of other places. But these are two books that you may not have heard of. The first one is called, Why Does It Have to Hurt? The Meaning of Christian Suffering by Dan McCartney. Very, very good book. Simple book. Thin book. See it? Readable. Um, very good. It's, it's, it's the book that I go to 
Most often for the whole, when someone's, or I'm struggling or someone I know is struggling, that's the one that comes to my mind to recommend. For the, for the, uh, more, I guess, brave among you, thank you, uh, we have Randy Alcorn's book. Now, if you guys know Randy Alcorn, you know he's very readable. So don't let the size of this book intimidate you. This is an ultra, ultra readable book. And if you're familiar with Randy's book on heaven, you know he's pretty exhaustive. Well, after he wrote his book on heaven, he decided to dive into the topic of Christian suffering and suffering and evil in the world, and he came out with this book, If God is Good, Faith in the Midst of Suffering and Evil. And I've just dipped into it. In fact, several of my illustrations that I'm going to use this morning come from this book. Randy's an excellent storyteller. He's an excellent writer. He's very thorough, and this book is very readable and easy to understand, and I would recommend it to you. Um, It's actually divided up into something like... 45 short chapters. They're under 10 pages in length, so you could kind of take that a piece at a time and work your way through it. But two books that I would recommend to you, especially if you are one of these people who are struggling presently with heartache or know of people who are. So here's where we're going this morning. We are going to talk about the reality of heartache from the book of Proverbs. We're going to talk about the reasons for heartache, and then we're going to talk about the resources to deal with heartache. So the reality, the reasons, and the resources. First of all, the reality of heartache. Well, I sort of hinted at it when we read the passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. You saw that Paul calls the church to encourage the faint-hearted, assuming that there will be those kinds of people in our churches. And there will be times in our own lives where we'll have to deal with such things. But One of the first passages that Tim read for us is in Proverbs 14, verse 13. If you want to turn there, we'll be flipping back and forth in the book of Proverbs. I invite you to go to Proverbs 14 and verse 13. And there we read the following. Even in laughter, even in laughter, the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. That's an interesting proverb. It teaches us. That external behavior does not necessarily match up with internal condition. A person on the outside can be laughing, can be seemingly happy, but yet underneath that, behind that, can be heartache and can be grief. So this condition that we're talking about this morning is a hidden condition. It's not necessarily an obvious condition. Now, sometimes it is an obvious condition. Sometimes we can tell when a person is dejected, when a person is hurting, when a person is grieving. We can see it on their face. We can hear it in their voice. But oftentimes we can't. Oftentimes we'll see, some, we'll see each other at a meeting like this. We'll walk the hallways. We'll say hello. We'll appear jovial and happy and with it together. But on the inside, we could be crushed, we could be broken, we could be hurting. So I want you to know to be aware of that. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. It is possible to have great heartache and laughter at the same time. And just as it is possible to have grief in the midst of joy. So it's a hidden condition, but it's a very real condition. Another proverb Proverbs 18 and verse 14, if you'd like to turn there. It's not only a hidden condition, heartache, but it's also a crippling condition. 
Proverbs 18 verse 14 says, A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear? Now, we can get along in life with a lot of stuff. We can get along in life being sick. Many of you can function at high levels with severe sickness in your body. You could be battling the flu. You could be fighting off some migraine or some sort of headache or, or, or physical problem. And you can endure that. Your spirit can endure it. You can still maintain relative life and vigor and happiness. But this proverb says that when we have a crushed spirit, not just our physical condition is sick, but our spiritual condition is sick, we cannot bear that life. We cannot live in, under those conditions. Now, the word spirit is the translation of the Hebrew word that's often translated wind. When it's used in this way, it often refers to force or power or energy. But when it's used to refer to the human spirit, it's similar to what we might call emotional energy or passion for life. So a crushed spirit means that we look out at life and we have no desire for it, no joy in it, and no passion to get out after it. Exodus 35:21 gives us some insight into what the spirit in us causes us to do. The context is the building of the tabernacle. Moses is setting it up and calling people to help. And in Exodus 35:21 we read, "And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him." And brought the Lord's contribution for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So we have this idea of people who are being compelled by their spirit to move out with passion and vigor and do something. A crushed spirit's the opposite of that. A crushed spirit when there's no motivation, there's no desire, there's no passion, there's no emotional energy, there's no resources that propels you out into life. Rather, you have no desire for it, no joy in it, no passion. So that's the reality. It's a hidden condition, but it's a crippling condition. And we need to be aware that it's real. Second point. What are some of the reasons the proverb gives the Proverbs give us for why we experience heartache? Now, before I get into that, let me just say the Proverbs treat this condition as highly complex. It's not a simple answer. In fact, we need to avoid reductionism. What do I mean by that? That means we need to avoid reducing... The complexity of the human soul to one or two principles that if we lived in light of, we wouldn't experience this. One writer says it's naive and potentially harmful to those seeking help to treat them one dimensionally. It also disrespects the way God made humans and the pervasive effects of our fallen condition. Along similar lines, the need for medicinal aids for behavior and mood should not preclude responsibility and accountability. It should temper our approach with compassion and mercy, but only in a context that preserves the dignity of exercising as much responsibility as possible. In summary, they say, counselors and doctors and pastors and friends and church members should never think one-dimensionally concerning the condition of a person. We are more than bodies with physical needs. Other dimensions of our being, spiritual, emotional, social, must receive equal consideration in the battle for 
health. A biblically-based, holistic approach to counseling respects all dimensions of personhood created by God in the full context of creation, fall, redemption, and final restoration. I think that's well said. The point being, we're complex. It's not a simple solution. And the Proverbs don't pretend that it's a simple solution. In fact, you're going to see there are many reasons that are given for why we might experience heartache. So we need to avoid simplifying. We need to avoid being reductionistic and simplifying the remedies. In fact, Proverbs 25 verse 20 tells us to not be simplistic. Listen to these words. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. That is a warning for potential counselors to be aware before they say something. To be aware that they might know what's going on with that person. Say, all they need to be cheered up. They just need to have a song sung to them. Their, their heart's heavy. They need, to, they need to just be cheered up and have a, a sweet song sung to them. And his response is, if you do that, it's going to be like taking off a coat when it's freezing outside. It's not going to help. It's going to be like vinegar on soda. It's going to create chemical reactions that aren't good. It may create anger, insensitivity. You don't do that. So the the posture of the Proverbs is be like Job's three friends before they got stupid. (laughs) Sit there, shut up and listen. That's the best thing they did in that whole book. So when they started opening their mouths, they got in trouble. And assuming they knew everything that God was doing in that person's life and why they were doing it. Job, I'll tell you what God's doing. He's doing this, 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 and this, and this. And if you just repent and do this, this, and this, you wouldn't have these things. Silly nonsense. So what are some of the reasons then that Proverbs gives? Well, the first is anxiety. Anxiety. Proverbs 12.25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. But a good word makes him glad. Simple enough, right? Anxiety, worry, fear. Any number of things in our lives can bring about anxiety. But the correlation between anxiety and a crushed spirit is very close together. Anxiety is what brings a man's heart down. A second reason is also unfulfilled desires. Proverbs 13:12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, we all have hopes, we have dreams, we have visions, we have desires. And when those things go unfulfilled, we can have the temptation to be very dejected about it. A job doesn't turn out the way we had hoped it did. A relationship doesn't turn out the way we hoped it did. We had the prospect of children, and that didn't turn out the way we hoped it would. Or a situation that I thought was going to go this way ended up going this way. I had these hopes, these dreams, these desires, which God wants us to have. But when those are deferred, unfulfilled, the temptation is to become very downcast and dejected. The heart gets sick. In fact, Proverbs 13, 19 says that a desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. So what's a desire unfulfilled? Bitter to the soul. Bitter. So anxiety Unfulfilled desires. Thirdly, lingering trials can also be a reason for heartache. Proverbs 15, 15. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart 
has a continual feast. The cheerful of heart has a continual feast. But what if the heart's not cheerful? Then the view of life is not, I have a continual feast. All is well. The the lines have been drawn for me in pleasant places, as the psalm says. But rather, all my days are evil. There's a covering over the days, which is evil and dark. And that's what the afflicted feel like. Or can feel like. So anxiety, unfulfilled desires, lingering trials, finally sorrow. Just general sorrow can be a reason for heartache. Proverbs fifteen thirteen: A glad heart makes a cheerful face. But by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. By sorrow of heart. And don't you love just the... The generalities of the Proverbs that insert any kind of sorrow that you can imagine. And those kinds of things will contribute to the crushing of the spirit. So anxiety, unfulfilled desires, lingering trials, sorrow are all reasons the Proverbs give for heartache. So it's a complex reality. It's not just emotional. It's not just physical. It's not just circumstantial. All of that can contribute to heartache. And we, we as Christians tend to be really good at being reductionistic and assuming that we know what's going on with a person before actually getting in and finding out. And Proverbs would discourage us from that practice as well. There's another proverb, which I didn't write in my notes, which you may be familiar with. I don't have it memorized, so I'm going to kind of do the Redfern National Translation or whatever, which is, You know, you think you know something and you approach the person and you think you have the right answer only to have another piece of information added into it and you look like a fool. Whatever that proverb might be. (laughs) So sounds proverbial and nice. but, But the Proverbs would discourage us from that kind of practice. We need to take a humble posture. We need to take a listening posture. We need to take a patient posture and realize that the situation may be very complex. Now, we've talked about the reality, we've talked about the reasons, now I'm going to spend most of the time talking about the resources. Now, I was tempted to put as my third point, the remedy for heartache. But as I thought about that more, I thought, how reductionistic, how in some ways insensitive to think, I've got the remedies, you know. The reality is, is that this is a broken fallen, crippled, curse-filled world. And heartache, brothers and sisters, if you don't know, is going to be par for the course in this age. You are going to experience it. You're going to have it. The Psalms tell you to expect it. The Psalms give you plenty of laments to give voice to your cries. But it's going to be an ongoing issue. It's not just something you fix. and then you're. Now, there can be growth. There can be development. There can be the strengthening of the heart. Amen. We should expect it, pray for it, labor to that end. But there is going to be a residual, ongoing brokenness and heartache that's going to be characteristic of our, of our existence. And if you think it's any different for any of your other brothers and sisters, you're fooled. If you think it's the case for this pastor, you're right. Heartache is par for the course in this age. It doesn't mean that a crushed spirit 
is par for the course, that we're, that we're constantly going to be subjected to dejection and sorrow and down. No, 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 no. But a low-grade sense that all is not well, all is not right, the world is not as it should be, frustration, brokenness, fear, anxiety, all those things, all the things that would contribute to heartache are going to be present in our lives. So rather than offer some sort of remedy, let me offer us resources. Resources for dealing with the ongoing temptations that accompany heartache. And the Proverbs give us a lot of them. The Proverbs gives us wise counsel for how to deal with these conditions. And I, I want to I give you five. Here's the first one. Stop comparing yourself and your condition in life with other people. Proverbs 14.30 A tranquil heart, that is a peaceful heart, gives life to the flesh. That's what we want. We want a tranquil heart. We want a peaceful heart. We want a heart that's content and at rest. Well, what contributes to the heart not being content, not being at rest, not being at peace, not being tranquil? Proverbs 14.30 gives us in the second half of the verse, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy rots the bones. Envy, jealousy, comparing yourself, a horizontal look. Look at me, look at my condition, look at my difficulty. You You are going to have heartache if you continue to do that. We have to get our eyes off of ourself. We have to get our, our, our eyes onto the Lord. And instead of envying what we don't have, we need to find someone else who is struggling, which is everyone to some degree, and help them. I was so helped. Listen to this illustration of a woman by the name of Alice Gray. Alice could be one of these people that experiences profound heartache. As you're going to see, she has enough conditions in her life to warrant it. But listen to what she does. Alice Gray writes of sitting at a restaurant, talking with a friend about painful challenges in their lives. They frequently mention the Lord. Alice noticed a young woman at the next table with a radiant, joyful face. The young woman smiled and said she'd overheard their conversation. Speaking softly, She encouraged Alice and her friend Marlene, who were talking, that God understood and cared about their heartaches, and nothing could separate them from God's love. So Alice continued talking with Marlene, but realized something was different. The young woman's words had refreshed them. When the smiling woman got up to leave, Alice saw that she wore bulky shoes, carried a walking stick, and moved with a severe limp. The waitress told Alice this woman had been in a near-fatal automobile accident the year before. She'd been in and out of the hospital and rehabilitation. Her husband divorced her. Their home had been sold, and she'd just moved into her own apartment. She used public transportation because she couldn't drive. She'd been unable to find a job. Alice sat stunned. She said this young woman's conversation had been filled with the delights of the Lord. There'd been no weariness about her. She'd encouraged us with words of praise and promise. Meeting her that day, we never would have, uh, would have suspected the storms that were raging in her life. Even as she stepped outside into the cold winter wind, she seemed to carry God's warm shelter of hope with her. Isn't that great? 
we see a woman who had every reason to turn in on herself, but instead she was committed to encouraging others in the Lord. She's a woman who had stopped comparing. Secondly, not only do we need to stop comparing, we need to start sharing. Start sharing. Share your struggle. Now, there's a temptation here, and the Proverbs assumes it, that because no one can totally identify with your struggle, that you ought not to share it. And that trying to share it and trying to convey it to someone else is just going to end in frustration because they're not going to get it. And the Proverbs anticipate that. Proverbs 14.10 says, The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. That's right. No one knows your heart like you. And the Bible also tells you you don't really know your heart that well either. But, but no one knows your pain. No one knows your heartache. No one knows your bitterness. No one knows your difficulty. No one knows your joys like you. But the temptation is to take that and say, therefore, I'm not going to do what the Proverbs would encourage me to do, which is share my struggles and get help. In fact, the Proverbs encourage us towards that end. Proverbs 27.9, oil and perfume make the heart glad. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. The implication, you have opened yourself up and you are receiving counsel from a trusted friend. And it is a, it's contributing to sweetness and the gladdening of your heart. It's like oil and perfume. You know, Paul experienced this as well. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, isn't that great? It's everything he wants. I'm going to preach the gospel. It's what I live for. It's what I'm called to do. And I have an open door for ministry. But what's the condition of his heart when he gets there? I still had no peace of mind. Because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Amazing. Paul gets there. He's ready to minister. He's ready to preach. He realizes Titus is not there. He's like, no, I'm going somewhere else. Paul needed a brother to help him face his ministry difficulties. When he didn't find Titus, even the great apostle lacked the support he needed to go through the door that God had opened for him. We also see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that God later eased Paul's distress through sending Titus at last. Listen to these words. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. There it is, external and internal pressure. Paul's on the verge of a crushed spirit. But when, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. There it is. A person God used as an instrument of comfort in the life of one of his servants. And such is the case when we're dejected, when we're downcast, when we're afflicted, when we have conflicts and out and fears within. Sometimes what we need is a friend, a trusted friend who will come to us. And just be there. So we need to stop comparing. We need to start sharing and opening our life up and looking to get involved 
and, and involve others in our lives and not turn inward and retreat. Thirdly, we need to pray. Start praying. You say, Pastor Mark, you don't get it. <laughs> the last thing a person with a crushed spirit wants to do is pray. Well, you know, in Psalm 51, David had a crushed spirit. It was because of his guilt and his sin. And sometimes that contributes to a crushed spirit as well. It's not mentioned in the Proverbs. It's mentioned in other parts of the Bible, though. Sometimes we do bring it on ourselves. We, in, we, we are responsible for our crushed spirit. But he, in the midst of his crushed spirit, he found this prayer. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He didn't even hardly find a willing spirit in himself. He didn't even finally, finally, he just said, okay, I know where to go. God, restore to me the joy that I had prior to my sin. And uphold me, uphold me with a willing spirit. You know, one of the most encouraging ladies, if you've ever read her books or read of her, is Johnny Erickson Tata, the quadriplegic who became a quadriplegic, I believe, as a result of a horse riding accident. Johnny Erickson Tata writes this, writes the following. Oh, God, I often pray in the morning. God, I cannot do this. So this is prayer now. This is prayer. She's a quad. She can't do anything for herself. She sits in a wheelchair all day long and get, has to get moved and helped everywhere. Oh, God, I often pray in the morning. God, I cannot do this. I cannot do this thing called quadriplegia. I have no resources for this. I have no strength for this. But you do. You've got resources. You've got strength. I can't do quadriplegia, but I can do all things through you as you strengthen me. I have no smile for this woman who's going to walk into my bedroom in a moment. She could be having coffee with another friend, but she's chosen to come here to help me get up. Oh, God, please, may I borrow your smile? That woman has grace beyond grace. And then she goes on and says, these are people who are humiliated by their weaknesses. They're, sorry, there are people who are humiliated by their weaknesses. Catheterized people whose leg bags spring leaks on somebody else's brand new carpet. Immobilized people who must be fed, cleansed, dressed, and taken care of like infants. Once active people crippled by chronic aches and pains. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So then submit yourselves to God. Then Johnny goes on and says, It's when your soul has been blasted bare. When you feel raw and undone, that you can be better bonded to the Savior. And then you not only meet suffering on God's terms, but you meet joy on God's terms. And then God, as he does every morning at 730 when I cry out to him out of my affliction, happily shares his gladness, his joy flooding over heaven's walls, filling my heart in a waterfall of delight, which then in turn always streams out to others in a flood of encouragement and then erupts back to God in an ecstatic fountain of praise. He gets your heart pumping for heaven. He injects his peace, power, and perspective into your spiritual being. He imparts a new way of looking at your hardship. He puts a song in your heart. Amen. And that's from a woman who knows it, too. So stop comparing, start sharing, start praying. Or I should say keep praying, maybe. Keep praying. And then keep listening. Fourth word of counsel. Keep 
listening. Now, listen to some of these Proverbs. Proverbs 15, verse 30. Listen very carefully. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. Good news. Good news refreshes the bones. And what's the ultimate good news, brothers and sisters? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the ultimate good news. John Stott in The Cross of Christ tells a story. One of my favorite books, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. He shares a story about billions of people that are sitting on a great plane in front of God's throne. And most have drawn back while some are crowded to the front raising angry voices at God. Can God judge us, they say? How can he know about suffering, snapped one one woman, ripping a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. Can God judge me? Other sufferers expressed their complaints against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted. What did God know of my weeping, my hunger, my hatred? God leads a sheltered life in heaven. Someone from Hiroshima, people born deformed, others murdered, each sent forward a leader. They concluded that before God could judge them, he should be sentenced to live on earth as a man to endure the suffering that they endured. And then they pronounced the sentence. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Let his close friends betray him. Let him face false charges. Let him be a, let a prejudiced jury try him and cowardly judge convict him. Let him be tortured. Let him be utterly alone. Then bloody and forsaken, let him die. The room grew silent after the sentence against God had been pronounced. No one moved and a weight fell on each face. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. And then Dorothy Sayers writes, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he's kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Brothers and sisters, that's good news. That's the God we bring our crushed spirit to. A God who has in himself a crushed human spirit. Because Jesus Christ came and lived and died on a cross and suffered the wrath of God in your place for your sin. And he experienced the epitome of what a crushed spirit and heartache is all about. He lost everything that was precious to him. And he carried that experience with him back to the Father in a glorified humanity. And such he will always have the wounds. And he holds them out. for his, He's never going to get rid of those scars. They're an indelible mark that shows, I understand. I'm there. Come to me. That's good news for the Christian spirit. That should lift your heart. That your God not only understands, 
He has experienced what you've experienced. And not just in some sort of all-knowing God way. He's actually felt it. And felt it in a deeper way than you'll ever have to experience it. And He invites you to bring your broken heart to Him. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God will never despise your heart that's broken and contrite that you bring to him. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. How does he ultimately save the crushed in spirit? He saves them by crushing his son's spirit. By nailing his son to a cross to die for our sin, to rise so that we could be accepted into the family of God by faith. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We need to listen to it. We need to hear it. It's all throughout the Bible. We need to be reminded of it again and again and again and again. And finally, let me conclude by saying not only should we stop comparing, not only should we start praying and listen to the good news and share our struggles, but we need at times just to live in the Psalms. Live in the Psalms. Would you turn with me to Psalm 77? And I'm just going to read it and we're going to close. In the Psalms, brothers and sisters, we find a voice for our cries. When we don't have words, we find words. And Psalm 77 gives us a picture of a person who's crushed in spirit and how they came out of it. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying, and my soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Brothers and sisters, is that a, is that a Christian? Do you have categories for that as a Christian? You should. There will be times when you shouldn't be surprised to hear from another brother's or sister's lips. Stop sharing the Bible. It makes me sick. We need to have categories for that. Sometimes the heartache is so profound. Sometimes the spirit is so crushed and so wounded that even to think about God and to meditate on God causes the heart to sink even more. (laughs) Isn't that ironic? When I meditate, my spirit faints. But but we're not done with the psalm yet. Because the psalm says, that doesn't mean you don't stop thinking. You don't stop meditating. You don't start getting the Bible. You don't stop listening. You have to press on. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I can't speak. They can't talk. They can't sleep. Verse 5, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So they're, they're thinking now. Verse 7, will the Lord spurn me forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And there's a Selah there which tells pause and think. That's what you're encouraged to do at those moments. Pause and think. Is that your God? And your answer if you're thinking long enough is no. He, will, he has not forgotten to be gracious. He has not in anger shut up his compassion. He has not ceased his forever steadfast love that he has promised. His promises are for all time. 
Verse 10, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Brothers and sisters, we've got to do that. You've got to think. You've got to engage your mind. You've got to think about what God has done for you in your life and what God has done in revealed in history in the Bible. All the wonderful things that he has done for his people. I'll ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your paths through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What's he describing? Redemption. Redemption of God's people and how God carried them and moved powerfully for them. That's where we got to live. That's where we got to live. The redemption that we've experienced in Christ, the way that he has carried us and engaged all of his power and might for us. That's where we got to live. And may God help us to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is real, which is raw, which lays out to us the way life is in this fallen world. We thank you that the Lord Jesus has conquered, that there is coming a day, a new heavens and a new earth, where there will be no more sorrow and no more tears, for the former things will have passed away. Help us to always live in that hope, because that hope will not be deferred, and that hope will not make our hearts sick. If our hope is there, if our hope is rooted firmly in the new heavens and the new earth, we will never be disappointed. Those who trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. As you say in Isaiah, Israel is saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. May our hope be in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.